Hello, and welcome to the Indie Author Method Podcast, where we talk with independent authors about their process and how they can help you along your writing journey. I am your host, best-selling and award-winning author, Andrew J. Brandt. Before we get into it, this episode of the Indie Author Method is brought to you by The Subtle Nerd. The Subtle Nerd was born from fashion-forward comfort needs with a fun, sneaky twist on the geek and nerd culture. I have quite a few t-shirts from The Subtle Nerd, and my favorite is honestly the Three Broomsticks t-shirt. See, whether I'm in gym shorts and taking a jog around my neighborhood, or I pair it with a pair of jeans and sneakers and hit up one of my favorite breweries, this shirt looks great on me. It fits comfortably, it feels great, plus it's got that little hint of subtle nerddom, and I love it. So whether you get the Three Broomsticks shirt, or even the official mixtape for the End of the World t-shirt that I collabed with the Subtle Nerd on, check them out, check out their apparel, and get 10% off your order by using promo code INDIE at thesubtlenerd.com. This episode is also brought to you by Expand Shoelaces. A shoe's performance is literally held together by its laces. Expand creator Chuck Harris believed they could be better. It all began in 2015 when Chuck had the misfortune of contracting West Nile virus. One of the symptoms he experienced was the swelling of his feet throughout the day. It got so bad for him that the simple task of tying his shoes became painful. And with that, an idea was born. Chuck asked, what if your shoes could remain comfortable and snug whatever the conditions? Removing hot spots and pressure point aggravation while remaining a perfect fit every time. With that as his starting point, he devised a system to secure shoelaces using two elastic laces that allowed for a breathable, comfortably snug fit that regular shoelaces just wouldn't allow. Add to that innovation anchor mechanism, which helped to secure the laces in place, removing the need to tie them ever again. I use Expand Laces on my Thursday Boot Company sneakers, and they make my shoes comfortable and easy to wear. Think outside the shoebox and get 10% off your next shoelace order with promo code INDIE at expandlaces.com. That's the letter X, Expand Laces, promo code INDIE. Now, let's get on to the interview. This week, I'm joined by actually a friend of mine. His name is Derek Porterfield, and Derek is one of the most talented human beings I know. His Mute Cat Chronicles series is on book two with a third on the way. He's put out one book of poetry and launched a successful Kickstarter campaign this year for the second. In addition to all of that, he's an incredible singer-songwriter, and his 2020 album, I Don't Like Me Either, was legitimately in my top three albums of that year. Beyond all that, Derek is someone I talk with on a regular basis, and I'm excited to interview him here as we get into the processes that he's employed as a creative, a novelist, and a poet. Derek, how are you? Dude, what what an intro, man! That was uh, I, I'm gonna have you write my Tinder bio. That was incredible. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate means. you having me on. Yes, thank you. So, Derek, let's get into it, man. Uh, I mean, you wear a ton of different hats as a creative. Um, one of the first things we're going to focus on is is your writing, uh, specifically your novelist, uh, your novels, and and your poetry books. What made you want to start writing? Well, you know, honestly, I've wanted to write. And I think any creative, is it's kind of like with, with music, you know, every guitarist wants to be a drummer. I think anyone that has done any tor- sort of creative work wants to be a writer in some sense. Everyone has that book that they've uh, kind of piddled around with for years. And that was me, you know, in, in college, I had started several books and never finished them. And 
the mute cat chronicles was a book that I had, I had kind of been playing around with in my head for years. And then uh, Andrew Monroe put out his uh, incredible fantasy book, uh, a leaf and pebble. And he, through talking to him and, and us kind of working together a little bit, I finally said, okay, well, fine, I'll, I'll just do this. You know, I'll just, I'll make this happen and, and kind of worked on it from there. That's so funny because Andrew Monroe uh, is someone else I'm going to have on this show. And it's really funny due to scheduling. He may come on before you and he may be scheduled after <laughs> you. I don't know where that where the uh, publishing schedule is going to lie. But I'm actually excited to talk with him about his process and how uh, and the things that he kind of taught you, I guess you could say, um, sure. about his processes, too. So, yeah, the Mute Cat Chronicles uh, books one and two, I, I devoured them. Uh, I thought they were incredibly imaginative. I really enjoyed the science fiction. Um, I really enjoy like the church of technology that you, that you wrote about in those books. I mean, obviously it's fiction, but I feel like that's definitely something that's inspired by real life as we get closer to like metaverse kind of stuff. Absolutely. And and thank you for that, man. I, I appreciate it. I'm glad you liked it. I, I think um, all science fiction authors are, uh, in, in many ways, satirists, right? Like we're, we're writing satire of the world that we already live in. Um, and we're just kind of expanding upon, uh, what is generally just existing technology or existing uh, social structures. And, and so I, I hope that I was able to kind of capture some of the, the frustrations and the terrors of our modern world and make that into kind of a fun story. Um, that's, that's the goal of it anyway. And I think that's the goal of, of almost any book, you know, if you're, if you're really trying to reach an audience, if you're trying to talk to people and reach out to people, um, your, your goal should also be to say, Hey, this is, this is something I'm really passionate about, or this is something I'm really upset about. And, uh, you know, you get to use your book as a soapbox of sorts. It's kind of funny. Yeah. You know, I think it was Stephen King that when he talks about, you know, writing what you know, and well, nobody knows what the future is like. No one knows what it's like to travel across the stars and through galaxies. But people, I mean, I know me per personally in a, uh, in an earlier life, I knew what it was like to be an electrician. So I, I wonder what it'd be like to write about being an electrician on a ship that's traveling across galaxies. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, and that's truly what you're doing is you're taking little bits and pieces of things that you do know and allowing them to fit inside of a world of escape because I, and I think this is probably true for you as well, but I grew up, um, needing an escape, needing a place to run to and books were that place for me, um, in particular science fiction books. And so I, as a writer now, I am hoping to build some of those worlds for, for some of those younger kids or, or even adults that just want a place to run to and a place to kind of hang out in. Um, you know, you're creating these, these universes full of unique people and, and unique situations based around a uh, environment that hopefully you kind of understand a little bit. Let's get into that. Um, you know, tell me about some of the authors or books that, you know, that inspired you not only when you began writing, but when you were much younger, you know, what were some of those stories that, that drove you toward knowing that you had your own creative stories to tell? So I don't think I actually saw myself as, as much of an author early on, you know, I, I devoured the books. I loved Orson Scott card. Like Ender's game was, was really like the standout for me as a science fiction book of, of just like, okay, I love this. Um, star Wars. I read way too many star Wars books. Uh, there was the, uh, the series called Jedi Academy and it basically followed Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan in the events that led up to the Phantom Menace. And I remember as a young kid, I loved those, man. 
I devoured every single one of those Jedi Academy <laughs> books. And before that was a series called Young Jedi Knights. Oh, I didn't read that. Those came out in like 95, 96, 97, before the prequels. And it followed Han and Leia's twins, son and daughter twins, who went to Luke's Jedi Academy and got into hijinks with, you know, some of their friends there. Did you ever read the Han Solo book? Oh, God. Like Han Solo at Star's End? Uh, yeah, I think at Star's End. And then there was Tales of the Bounty Hunters was the second one. That was my favorite one. I read that like five or six times. I remember having like a trade paperback version of Tales of the Bounty Hunters. And so I mean, good. it was, I mean, the, the cover was ripped and torn. And <laughs> I mean, it was, I, I read that thing front to cover several times. There was There was a time in my life that I was running through Star Wars books two or three a week i would go to the library and just find anything with the star wars logo on it and just read them oh yeah yeah well and and that's what i love is is finding those properties that it doesn't matter how good the writing was at that point you know i didn't care i just wanted more things inside of this universe that i loved i wanted to live in the star wars universe and kind of a part of me i think believed that i did right like i there was a part of me that thought if i traveled fast enough and far enough in a spaceship i could end up somewhere where they had lightsabers and uh getting into those books and, and reading all of those books i didn't care about the quality at all i just really just wanted more star wars you know i think it's ethan hawk uh, or maybe it's richard linklater that talks about how our worldview the way we see the world is shaped by our own experiences and and so much of that is shaped by the pop culture that we consume. And uh, and so therefore, like the stories that we want to tell, the flavors of those stories come out kind of flavored like all that stuff that we that we read when we were younger. Right, right. I agree with that. Um, I I'm curious it, when when you were reading the Star Wars books, did you were you uh, into the Star Trek versus Star Wars thing? Like, was that a was that a thing for you? Or did you just like both of them? No, I mean, it It really wasn't a thing for me just because I paid no attention to Star Trek. Oh, you missed it. And have lightsabers, so it wasn't even in my periphery. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. In the absence of lightsabers, we have to to default back to Star Wars, I guess. You know, and then I, I did, I do remember like seeing the intro to Deep Space Nine. And the only thing that caught my attention was like, there was a wormhole that opened up in the in the opening credits. That was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. But then once the show started, I've changed the channel. <laughs> Just wasn't for you. That's fair. Yeah. So, I mean, you, 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 you've written a couple of books, say primarily, I mean, you are someone hard to pin down. You know, you're, you're a novelist, you're a musician, you're a singer songwriter, you're a poet, you're a photographer. First, where do you find the time to do all this stuff? And second, where does that creativity well come from in you? So I, that's a good question as far as time. I, I think you will sympathize with this as a father as well. But as, as soon as I had Hazel, I became hyper aware of all the time that I had been underutilizing before I had a child, right? Like there was this, this gap in my youth where I felt like I was busy, but really I was just, you know, hanging out at the coffee shop or at the bar or you know, going around and just chilling at Hastings with my friends. And, and those things, while important, were not like this enormous time sink that I acted as though they were. Um, I, I could definitely have prioritized a little bit better. And having a child, having Hazel, um, allowed me to realize like, okay, well, I have to be more efficient with my time or else I won't be able to do anything, right? So I 
uh, was able to, through parenthood, figure out uh, all of the gaps in my um, maturity development <laughs> and uh, and kind of grow up and just start making time for the things that are important to me. So uh, with that came a lot of deprioritization. So um, I didn't play music for a couple of years when, when Hazel was first born. There was just no time for it. And, you know, that was something that didn't make money. And I was at a time in my life when I was also very poor. Um, so, uh, I had to, I had to focus on making a lot of money and, and, uh, that's how you make time for all those other things is more it's, it's panic, right? Like I have to do this. I have to provide for my family. I have to feed, clothe and, and house this beautiful little child, um, who did not ask to be brought into this world. And now, now I have to account for that. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I know that life so well, just being self-employed for, over a decade now, um, from my mid twenties and now I'm in my mid thirties and I've not had a quote unquote real job since, uh, since Barack Obama was in office, you know, Which, and congratulations. That's that in and of itself is a big accomplishment, man. You should be very proud of that. Well, thank you. But that said, I mean, there's very much that drive of waking up every day and saying, I have to make money today. Yes. yes. And, <laughs> and I have to make this happen. And it's, you know, not to get into like a spiritual diatribe with you, but we can go down the road if you want. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's very easy to look at the things that you create, uh, at least for me, and the, um, the, the situations that, that I can create to make money from and say, I did this. You know, this is, this is not from any kind of overlord type being other than my own will and drive. Oh, I, I, I like that. And I, I try to encourage, uh, especially younger people that are getting into doing something creative or something fulfilling or something that is, is essentially just tied to the work you put in is the result you get out type situation. I want to talk to them about like, Hey, as soon as you take ownership for all of the successes, it's much easier to take ownership of the failures, right? Um, if, if you are the one that's saying, Hey, I did this, I made this happen then you also are the one that's, it's a lot easier to step in and say, okay, I screwed up. Let's fix this. And I think both of those are not, not just important. They're essential to running a, a successful business or running a, any, anything successful, like having any amount of success, you have to take accountability. You have to take responsibility. And, and the first step in that is saying like, Hey, I'm responsible. This is me. So that, that answer actually really dovetails really well into my next question was for you finish that first Mute Cat Chronicles book, and you had this finished product in your hand, and you had a choice. You could either search for agents and query it and hope somebody picks it up and go through that that whole process, or you cut down all that red tape and you put it out yourself and you and you find your audience and you say, I have this thing, I want you to buy it. Um, you know, was there a, a choice there or was the choice already made when you finished it? So I, you know, this is something that I, I still am wrestling with now. Uh, as as you look at any sort of art, I think it's it's always two pieces, right? There's fifty percent that's the creation, and that feels good as a creator. It feels good as someone who is making something and and trying to accomplish something. Once the thing is done, you have this thing, and it's selfishly, it's it's finished, right? In that moment, you have you have completed what you set out to do. But I think the other fifty percent is always pushing it out and making sure that other people have access to this because it goes back to what we talked about earlier. Um, when I was a kid, I needed these worlds to escape into. That that truly was life-shapingly important. And 
I think it is wrong for any artist, any creative to stop at the, I made this and it's mine, right? Because your next step, your next calling um, on this planet is to share that work with someone else. Because it doesn't matter if it's some eight or nine-year-old kid that's first discovering science fiction or some 50 or 60-year-old that needs to escape into a world that reminds him of something that he loved as a child. If you can provide that, you should. And so in considering the choices between self-publishing or going through an agent, um, largely, unfortunately, um, this came down to both laziness and a uh, lack of self-confidence, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so uh, I like immediacy, and and I'm a I'm I believe we live in a very unique time for immediately finishing something and getting it out to people, and I think that's important. I think it's valuable, but it also created this content culture that we can talk about later, maybe. But um, I love that right now, today, I could sit in my living room and record an entire album, and I could put that on Spotify by tomorrow. That's remarkable. By the same token, I could finish a book, and you know this, but within a few hours, I could throw this up on Amazon and be on KDP, and you could download that book, and you could have access to it. That's really powerful, and I think it's really important. And so I like that from an immediacy standpoint. I like that from, you know, I'm a millennial. I'm from the fast food generation, whatever. Like, I, I love that. But I do think there's value to agencies. I do think there's value to really uh, doing real publishing. Um, and I also think it adds a, an air of legitimacy. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, my my bookshelf behind me right now is, is full of books published by agented, traditionally published authors. But on that same shelf are a ton of books by you and Andrew Monroe and Jen Morris and a whole host of other people who, like you said, took that responsibility into their own hands and said, I created this. I think I can steer this ship and, and I've done it incredibly well. Right, right. I I think what I what I like to talk to people about is is um, managing expectations, right? So the advantage of finding a publisher and finding an agent and, and pitching it the traditional route, while it takes much, much longer, is you now have this this kind of machine behind you that's able to say, okay, well, we already know these places that we can push your book to, we can set up this stuff for you, we can kind of help you with the cover art, we can help you with pitching, we can help you with getting into all these different places. Um, and if you're new and you're not very good at talking to people and you maybe don't have very much experience with marketing, that's a pretty invaluable service. It, it feels really nice to have someone kind of handholding you past, you know, there's the creative part and then there's the marketing machine. And I would argue the creative part, unfortunately, this at this point is like 20% of the job, right? You You can write a really good album, but it doesn't matter if no one hears it. You can write a really good book, but it doesn't matter if it, no one reads it. And so I, I think you, you have a little bit of experience and, and you're doing a really good job of this, of marketing and reaching out to people. And you're not scared to walk into a place and be like, Hey, my name is Andrew Brandt. I wrote this book. Can I come sell it? Can I come do a book signing? Can I come talk to you about it? And that's really what it takes is to get over the hurdle of not having an agent behind you, of not having a publishing house behind you. You have to be comfortable going into those places and doing a lot of that legwork yourself. And if you're willing to do that, um, the, the income ceiling is a lot higher, I think. See, this is exactly why I started this podcast is, is guys like you who have been through the trenches and who understand that it takes, you know, so much more than just writing the book. You know, like you said, writing the book is essentially 20 percent of of the entire project here. Uh, I, even me, myself, you know, I find myself really it's 80, 20 marketing writing where, right. you know, I'll, you know, I'll write a book, but 
you know, that only takes four months um, you know, for a first draft to come out. And, and literally the rest of the year is spent you know, posting and talking about it and booking you know, signing events and going on television and going on the radio and all this stuff uh, that has nothing to do with the actual creative part of that process. But it's so much more important if you want to do this um, you know, for as, as a living, if you want to be a creative, if you want to be a writer and make money doing this, it's those things that make you successful, not necessarily the story that you write. So do you enjoy doing the uh, kind of publicity side of things? Do you enjoy doing the the social media and the marketing and the hitting up the TV stations, all that kind of stuff? Do you like that? I do. I really do enjoy that part of the process because, you know, just growing up, like I knew who Stephen King was before I'd even read Stephen King because there was an entire marketing publicity machine behind him. Um, and then just being self-employed for so long, you know, we don't have an, an ad agency with our business. We, we are the ad agency. And sure. so, you know, just taking a lot of those skills and translating them from, you know, a regular business into, you know, th- this whole author campaign was just a, a, a natural step. I think, I think that's a really difficult thing for uh, people who are new to this, maybe, to kind of get over. I know it was difficult for me with music. Um, it's actually the reason that I stopped playing music for a little while. Uh, even before Hazel was born, I was playing the uh, the bar circuit, right? So I would go out to these places and largely uh, you're treated like a jukebox, right? Like they come up to you and they're like, hey man, can you play Journey? And it's like, yeah, man, I can play Journey. Like I'll play, I'll play that song you love. I'll play some Don't Stop Believing in this bar because no one's ever heard that before. And you don't get to play your originals and you don't get to do the fun stuff that you got into music for. And eventually it kind of starts scraping away at the soul of why you started doing it. And I think that that can become very similar in uh, the book realm, because if, if you aren't careful, you get caught up in this feeling of like, okay, well, I wrote this book for a reason because I'm passionate about it, or it's a creatively fulfilling world, or it's something that I really wanted to share. It was something that was deep inside of me. And then you take that thing, that beautiful, tiny creation and then you have to turn it into business. And business is so very good at crushing that creative side of what we do, right? It's so very, very good at taking away all of the fun stuff and turning it into, well, how is this marketable? Who Who is your target audience? What does your target demographic buy? Like where, where are they located? Um, what are their ages? And when you start distilling it down, it takes away all this fun stuff and it turns it into like, okay, well now, now I'm the businessman. And, uh, you know, if you, if you've seen the Lego movie, you're, you're Will Ferrell, right? Like you're, you're the, you're captain business. Um, and that kind of sucks. That's, and so I, I think it's really difficult and, and important to learn how to balance those two and learn how to find the fun in going to those interviews and find the fun in marketing on Facebook and, and doing the social stuff. Cause if you can't find fun in it, um, you'll burn out and that's dangerous. This is something that you and I, we had talked about privately a few weeks ago. And then, um, I just recently, um, interviewed a gentleman named Andrew Van Way for this podcast mm-hmm. and then we talked about it, but I wanted to get your input here on what we call now the Taylor Swifting of something where you put out a surprise release or your marketing campaign is tied to the day of release where there's not a, a lead up. Do you see a future in this industry where that is could be considered the norm of, hey, I wrote this thing and there's no lead up. It's out. It's out right now. And I want your three dollars. I have your attention and I want your money right now. Yeah. Yeah. And and I love that. I, I think that is the way that you should do it. Um, 
I think marketing campaigns are for people who have uh, 100,000 people that are loyal, right? If, if you have 100,000 people that are listening to you, paying attention to you, sure, do a marketing campaign and lead up to it because they care. But if you are in this indie author space, which I think most of us are, where it's a much smaller group that, that cares about your work and that wants to digest your work, um, me announcing, hey, I'm going to have a book in six months. Hey, I'm going to have a book in three months. All that does is it dulls the excitement over time and they lose interest. I know I'm this way. If if you were to come to me and you'd be like, hey, Derek, hey, in, in November of this year, um, I'm going to come out with this really great mystery thriller and I'm so excited about it. I'd be like, oh man, that's so great. I'm going to forget about this as soon as we leave this coffee shop, right? Because I'm inundated with information. I'm doom scrolling all day. I have so many things vying for my attention with much bigger budgets than you, right? So Instead, I think the goal should always be as soon as I hear about it, you can take action. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean like the Kickstarter was a great example of this it doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, you know, the thing is already done and it's here, but I need to be able to become a part of that. I need to be able to build my own anticipation and take all the actions necessary so that everything else is done for me. So in the instance of Kickstarter, if someone wanted to support that poetry book that I did, they were able to in that moment immediately spend their money and say, cool, I'm done. I bought Derek's book and whenever it comes out, it comes to me, right? But if instead they had seen an ad, it's like, hey, Derek's going to be doing a Kickstarter. Isn't that exciting? Or Derek's going to be making a poetry book. Isn't that exciting? They can't do anything about it. You know, you, you can't you can't take action with your wallet, your heart, or your mind, and therefore it's gone. You know, you had put out that first poetry book, uh, which was a surprise, at least to me. I hadn't heard about it until it was, hey, this is out. I like to be I like to be kind of quiet about certain things. It's and 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 for that reason, I mean, it ties ties together with this. But I like to. Um, it's not even about being a surprise. It's about uh, <laughs> again, it goes back to not having self confidence. But like, what if I don't finish this thing? Right? Um, there there is a certain element of um, this is mine and it is in its infancy, and I'm not sure when it's going to be done. And then when it's finished, I can then say, okay, cool, it's done. Here, you can buy it. Um, but if I don't finish it, if it needs another year, I can put that in the back catalog. And I can keep molding it and shaping it. And no one knows about it. No one has to, no one's asking me about it. No one's, no one was asking for a poetry book from Derek Porterfield, right? Like the, the, the mass of, of five fans that I have that are paying attention to my stuff did not care. But the fact that I was able to throw it out there and have hey, fun. Now, now. Six. You got six. Oh yeah, that's right. That's me. right. I, I forget to include you sometimes, but um, with the six fans that I have, they were not, uh, looking for it, but it was still kind of a cool little me too thing that I could throw on there and say, Hey, look, like I've got this poetry book. And if you like my music and you like the sci-fi book, this might be something you could enjoy. Um, and it, that was a very fun project to put together. But again, it was one of those things where, uh, a surprise release has many different facets. One of those for me is definitely just like, Hey, I don't know if I'm going to finish this. I don't know if this is going to be ready. And when it is ready, I just want to push publish and go. Did you feel that kind of pressure? whenever you launched the Kickstarter campaign and when it, when it took off and when it was completely funded, I mean, did you feel that, that pressure of, Oh my God, now I actually have to do this. Uh, no, no. Cause again, uh, before I launched the Kickstarter, the book was done. Um, so the only, the only thing I have to, uh, finish right now is I'm calling the people that, uh, cause part of that Kickstarter was that I was going to write poems for people that supported a certain tier. And so, uh, there's going to be poems written about four to, these certain people. And so I need to call them and, and set up Skype calls. Uh, I believe you're one of them. Um, and, and, uh, 
we're so so I'll, I'll set up a skype call or actually we'll probably just go get coffee and uh i've got to talk to you and, and you know shape what that poem is going to be about obviously it's going to be incredibly sexual in nature um you know something very romantic uh, <laughs> um so i but but that's the thing is that that's kind of the nerve-wracking part where you're you're you know there's some people that i don't know as well uh, there's some people that i'm just i'm not very close to and so writing poems about them is going to be heavily reliant on those phone calls and i'm i'm looking forward to it it's a it's a really cool challenge and it's a really cool um opportunity to kind of meet some of these people that are the only reason i'm able to write books in the first place right like the only reason that i can dedicate the amount of time that i dedicate to this sort of thing um are, are now going to be a part of the book and i think that's pretty special you know i had mentioned that that album earlier i don't like me either i know i've told you this before and i'll tell you it again it's no bullshit like it is literally one of my favorite albums of that year and i still go back and whether i'm you know working on you know a website project or i'm just writing or whatever i'm doing i will put on winona writer and listen to it thank you so much man i love that album is there any difference in when you sit down to write lyrics for that you know are going to be a song or words that you know are going to go into a poetry book, is there a switch that you turn on and off in your brain there saying, this is music, kind of, this kind is of. not? So it, I, I make this joke. Um, have you read Name of the Wind? I think you have. I think I'm pretty sure we've talked about it with Patrick Rothfuss. So he has a line yes. in there that I'm going to butcher that, where he talks about how all poems are essentially just unfinished songs, right? And I, I believe that that resonates with me. So I will take songs that have never been completed or that I just never found a home, right? Like I, I couldn't find the right chord structure or maybe I don't play the instrument well enough and I don't do justice to these lyrics that I've written or their pacing or their place. And so those things then get reshaped into poems. Um, but that switch that you're talking about, um, that creative headspace for poetry and music, I think is roughly the same for me. It's just that if I'm holding a guitar while I'm writing, it tends to be something that turns into a song. And if I am inspired instead by something that's just kind of a bummer or exciting or, you know, the, the <laughs> chaotic tragedy of life that we all live in, I am able to sit down and just spit those words onto the page. And oftentimes that type of flow where I'm just sitting and typing tends to fit better for uh, some of the longer form poems. And I, I, this next book, I actually have the longest poem that I've ever published. It's, it's very, very long. Um, and, and I actually performed it at the 806, but it, it's, it reads a lot more like, uh, if, if you were ever as nerdy as me, uh, slam poetry, like if, if you've ever gone to a slam poetry thing, um, it, it reads a lot like that. So, um, there's, there's definitely a, a type of meter or rhythm or energy that lends itself better to poems than music. But I think both can be pretty well interchanged. You and I are about the same age, and when I was at West Texas A&M back in 2004, 2005, 2006, there was a lot of slam poetry on campus. Yes, yes, it was it was a vibe back then. Um, that was that was weird. It sure to me. was. Uh, well, and and that's honestly when I was in my uh, you know late teens, I was at the 806, and that was what was popular. These kids were coming up there, and they were doing really interesting slam poetry. And some of it obviously was not incredible, but honestly, there were certain poems in there that that even still, like if I hear a line from that poem that I had heard performed countless times over the course of, you know, some very formative years, it still gives me chills. It still makes me remember what it felt like to be that teenager that's searching for a family or a friend or someone that can just understand where, where you're at, right? That's really what we're all looking for as teenagers. And honestly, I, I would argue that all of us are looking for that as adults. We're just doing a better job of covering it up. Um, but 
that that's what that provided me. That's what slam poetry was for me. It was a, it was a home, a place to kind of hide in. You have a way of romanticizing your ideas in your head that, that I wish I had. Well, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that romanticism on anyone, man. It, it, it causes a, a lot of, a lot of chaotic emotions around the mundane. I, I, I actually, I recently, I was, um, I flew up to, uh, Connecticut to try all their pizza. And, uh, that was just a trip I wanted to take. It was a bucket list thing. And I tried a bunch of pizza in Connecticut and, um, on the way back in the airport, I got my very first ever in my life, pumpkin spice latte. And because I have so many emotions tied to so many random, disparate, mundane, stupid things, I wrote a long poem about a pumpkin spice latte and the existential crisis that came with like me ordering this very basic drink, right? Because I, I fancy myself a third wave coffee kind of guy, right? Like I'm, I'm the kind of guy that orders my beans from Kansas City and I grind them and use a Kalita wave pour over. And it's this ritual that is very important and a huge part of my morning. If I miss it, my, my brain doesn't work the same way, right? And it has nothing to do with the caffeine or the coffee and everything to do with the ritual. So, uh, you know, you talk about romanticizing the, all these different things. It's, it's kind of cool, I guess, but, but it also means that like really stupid stuff sticks out in your heart and, and sticks with you for a really long time, like a pumpkin spice latte. In it wasn't in, in Connecticut, but I actually also had my very first PSL ever this last year. How'd you like it? What, what, give me your thoughts. You know, it was it tasted different than I thought it would. Uh, I, I don't know why I was expecting something totally different. I'm not a pumpkin pie kind of guy. You're wrong for that. <laughs> well, you know, and no one's perfect, Derek Porterfield. But I was like, you know, I, I'm going to try this. I've never had one. I'm going to try it. And it was, it tasted like autumn in a cup. It's honestly, it's a great drink. Um, I, I hate admitting that. I hate admitting that to myself, but it, it really is. It's, it's a, um, it, for me at least, it was subtle enough on all the fall flavors and yet still, uh, you know, sweet and balanced and coffee. And I, I just loved it. Um, and I never thought I would admit that on a podcast. So uh, here well, we what are. is your, what is your go-to then? You know, let's say you go to one of the local places, um, rest in peace, Urbana, but you go somewhere and yeah, yeah. Are, are you like me where you, where you find the one thing you like and you order that one thing for 15 years? Oh yeah. Gen- generally speaking. Um, well I, I say that. So I, I have jokingly said that my favorite thing to order anywhere is, is someone else ordering for me. And that's very true. So if I go to a restaurant for the first time, I always let the waiter order. Um, I just basically say like, Hey, whatever you like, I'm good with. Um, I just don't want to look at a menu and uh, sometimes that works out really well and sometimes it doesn't, but I'm, I'm not picky. I'm not, I'm not someone that's ever going to get a meal and be like, Ooh, I don't like that. And that's just not me. I, I love all food. Um, but when it comes to coffee, if I'm trying out a new coffee shop, I have kind of the, the Holy Trinity that I like to, <laughs> to test them by. Right. So I, I get a shot of espresso, a, uh, iced latte, which I know is not canon for people. I, I get it. Like it should be a hot latte, but I like an iced latte and then, um, a pour over. So, Um, a lot of places don't offer a pour over. I used to do iced pour overs, like Japanese iced pour overs. Uh, but, but here lately I've been favoring the hot. And so I try all three of those drinks and, uh, that allows me to decide, okay, do I like this shop or do I not like this shop? Um, so it's, it's been pretty good for me. What do you, what is your order? What is your coffee order? You know, there's a local place in town that, uh, they have an Aztec mocha and that is it every single time, unless it's Christmas season and I go to the big chain because I want the peppermint mocha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you like a little sweet, you like a little sweet, you like a little mocha. I like that. 
part of me now that I'm in my mid thirties where I'm, I'm terrified of sugar. And, and so I, I try desperately to avoid it in certain drinks, especially in drink form. I haven't got there yet, man. <laughs> well, more power to you, man. You, you look great. I it's, it's more of an effort for some of us, you know, some of us really got to work to try and look like this. So <laughs> keep it up. I, I knew that this is the way this conversation would go. It would just be one of our coffee shop conversations. Chaotic. What's next on your agenda? I mean, you've, you've got the Kickstarter. That book is coming out. Anything else on the horizon? As far as books are concerned, yeah, I, I'm very excited and still working on the final book in the Mute Cat trilogy. And uh, continuing Addie's story has been um, kind of a labor of love. It's been it's been scary. I'll be honest, man. Uh, there's and uh, you and I have talked about this. I don't recommend new authors start out with with a trilogy. Um, it it ties you into uh, this this feeling of like I don't really want this to end. Um, and there's a part of me that wants to, to drag this out into like a series. And and then there's another part of me that's like, man, I'm done with this. I want to, I want to start somewhere else, but I just, I love this yeah. world. I Stephanie love, Meyer, that thing, uh, you write four books. Well, so I, I, I also have this very weird thing where I think you owe it to, uh, you know, your readers and yourself to set an end point. And I have, uh, you know, I have that end built. I, I know what I want to do with a story and I know where I want it to go. And now it's just making it pretty. And then now it's just making it something that I, I can be proud of. And uh, so that's been nerve wracking. It's been interesting. It's been fun to explore. Uh, I'm enjoying writing it. And the research for, for these books for me um, has been kind of fun. Uh, Zell uh, is one of the characters in the book and she's real big on explosives. And so uh, there's, there's like a, a part of this where like, anytime I'm writing her character, I'm trying to decide, okay, well, what kind of explosives is she going to use here? And then I get to go on this like rabbit hole. That's definitely sent up some flags at the FBI for yeah, me. I was going to say, you're going to get a knock on the front door by the ATF. <laughs> well, yeah. And, but it's also been interesting and you, I know you do this too, but the research part of a book is also really, really fun because you're, uh, you're, you're learning all sorts of random junk that I don't think I would have learned otherwise. Right. Like I, I don't have any need to look up the different types of explosives uh, that can be used in different scenarios. But because I'm writing this book with that, I get to do that. And that's kind of fun. You know, I, I do commend you because um, I've written a couple of books now that, that people will ask me, uh, you know, I'm at a book signing somewhere. Let's say, I love this one, but do you have a sequel for this other one coming out? And, and my answer is yes, I've got ideas for it, but man, I mean, I'll tell you like in the fog, my 2019 fall release, uh, I set that up with Great a book. cliffhanger specifically because I had more story in mind and I've written 30, 40,000 words of a sequel and it just can't do it. I feel like, I feel like if I, if I do this long enough, if I tell people for eight years, like, oh yeah, yeah, the next one's coming. I promise. Yeah, it's coming. <laughs> Maybe I can get some kind of HBO deal. You can George you know, R. Martin. Just keep them. Yeah. them on, keep them on that, on that hook for forever. <laughs> I like that. I, I will say, you know, the, the hardest thing for me, and I'm sure you can sympathize with this when writing a, a trilogy, what I, what I have is like this sheet and, and I write in Google docs. I think that's, um, my, it's, it's my favorite way to write because it's synced across everything. So if I come up with an idea while I'm, you know, out and about, I can whip out my phone and, and continue to add. Um, and so, I have a sheet that is essentially all of my characters and certain things that I have described about them or referenced about them earlier in the story so that I don't run into weird contradictions. You know, like I can't say, uh, you know, that this character is really tall and then make a reference to them being short somewhere else or, you know, like consistency is, is a very 
big struggle. And it's very important to me in writing a story across this many words and across this many pages. Um, and now across, you know, three years. So balancing that is tough and I get it, man. It's, it's also hard to make sure that, uh, the story you're telling flows and has a, cause I, I think in the fog has a, a very, while cliffhanger, it's still a, a good ending for that type of story. If that makes sense. Like it still feels good. It's filling at the end of the book. Like you don't feel like you got ripped off by the author. Like the, if you never write another book, people are not hurt because of that. Right. But if, if Rothfuss doesn't finish with doors of stone, um, we're all bummed. He, he kind of screwed us out of a completed story. Right. You know, I, I was just thinking about as you were talking, you know, your process of writing in Google Docs. I, I know I started, uh, you know, the treehouse and the abduction were all written completely in a Google Doc. And over the last few years, my my writing style and then just my process in itself has become so messy where I've got a bit of a word file here and I've got, you know, 20, 30 written handwritten pages here and I've got 12,000 words over here. And it almost is like putting together a puzzle whenever I finally write the end. Yeah, I, I so I think we're both pantsers, right? Like you just kind of, you kind of write as it comes. You don't really uh, do an organized chart or anything like that, right? You know, I, I, it used to be fully that way. Um, but these last few books have been way more structured, not a full outline. You know, I, I, I don't, I definitely don't do full outlining, sure, sure. but there's definitely a roadmap in place at least I know where the story's going and what beats I know I need to hit when I need to hit them. See, and, and for me, I, I still don't really consider that an outline. Cause I, I have, you know, the, I don't have scenes, but I have beats, right? So, so like to me, an outline or, or someone that is, is a lot more structured and organized than me would be like, Hey, these are all the scenes that I want to write within. And this is where our characters are going. And I allow, oftentimes I, I, I know who my characters are. And so I like to thrust myself into the situation that I want them to be in. Uh, so, so for example, um, we are on this next book. Uh, several of the characters are on the prison planet of Yurda. And so we kind of have like this, this prison break situation set up. Right. And I love just having that and writing those characters within the prison and writing and figuring out like, okay, well now they're interacting in this way. And it's almost like a discovery, right? So as you're writing, you're just kind of creatively able to figure out like, okay, well, this is what this character would do. And this is what this character would do. Um, and, and because, because I write like that, uh, it tends to be, I don't have a whole lot of separation. I already know roughly where I want things to, to end up. Um, and so it's just kind of filling in the middle. And so it, even though it's chaotic, even though like I'm, I'm randomly adding to the book, uh, you know, at the coffee shop on Georgia or when I'm waiting on my flight, uh, I, and sitting in the gross lobby of an airport, um, all those things still kind of flow together because I'm using Google docs the way that I do, but I don't know how you do it where you're, you're handwriting stuff and mixing that in with, that would be my ADD adult brain could never. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly chaotic. Yeah. I started handwriting mainly because uh, I, I admire Neil Gaiman so much, and, and I see his notebooks, and I said, I want to do that. And, and I set out originally I was going to write an entire novel by hand, and I got about forty or 50,000 words in this that I call now my desk novel. It probably will never see the light of day. Why? Why won't it see the light of day? Because of the, the subject matter. So to delve into it just, just briefly, it's, 
it's a heavy it's I wouldn't I would not call it a romance because there's no happy ever after ending but it is a love story and it's a love story set in the aftermath of a school shooting between the father of the kid who perpetrated it and the mother of one of the kids that was killed and it's about catharsis and it's about forgiveness and it's about small towns and how small towns can be very clinching on on who is welcome and who isn't and I have this idea, but I realize that I'm not mature enough as as a writer. I'm still a very young writer that I cannot do sure. that kind of emotion justice, and it would not it, it would not do well um, for the reader's sake to give them something half assed like that. I, I respect that, and I think that's a, a key: recognizing where you're at and and knowing, hey, I'm. I'm going to keep this story because it's a good idea, which I do think that's a good idea. Um, but I'm going to wait until I am ready to write it. Uh, there's, it, I, I think it's that way with, with almost anything. When, when you, um, I, I think it was Ira Glass said this from This American Life, but he said, you know, all, uh, everyone who does anything creative or, or pursues anything creative, they have this thing inside of them. That it, it's, they have great taste, right? Like they can recognize what is good and what is bad but they don't have the talent to back that up yet, right? So the goal is to practice and throw yourself into it enough that your talent matches your taste. And I, I love that. I love that idea because I think, um, and, and it goes back to a philosophy that I have with literally everything. You just kind of got to go do the thing, right? So keep writing and then you'll catch that in the editing phase or you wrote these other books. Um, it, it would be another thing entirely if you had said, okay, well, this is a great idea, but I need to wait until I'm a better writer. And then you just kind of waited, right? Like that's not the way to approach it. You needed to write other things. You needed to figure out, okay, well, what are, who am I as an author? Who am I as a person? And start establishing this path for yourself until your talent matches up with where it needs to be for that story that you want to write. You know, you are good for my soul. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Before I let you go, Derek, what is one thing that one piece of advice you would have for someone who comes up to you and says, I want to be a writer too. I have story ideas. Where do I start? Um, don't quit your day job. <laughs> <laughs> that would be my first advice. I No, I, I, I think it is uh, managing expectations. I, I think the key to literally anything, if you come up and tell me you want to be a writer, you want to be an author, you want to be a musician, um, go do it and stop asking for permission. There's too many people out there, and if you join any of the writers groups, especially here in West Texas, all of the posts on these dumb writers group, and I'm, they are dumb, I, I, I don't think you should, I know that there is value to promoting, and you will read a bunch of blogs and say, hey, join some Facebook group. I disagree with that entirely, because it is a circle jerk of people who are asking permission to do things. Just go do it. Um, then read your work when you are finished, and say, hey, is this good? And if you can't tell, if you don't know, ask your friends, ask other people, get beta readers, get other people whose taste you respect and say, hey, critique this and make sure that those people are going to be honest with you. I'm lucky enough to have a bunch of people that don't care about my feelings. And so they will tell me if something sucks. Uh, I think that's the most important part when you are young and when you are trying to do something for the first time is to surround yourself with people who will not just butter you up, will not just say, yes, 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 this is good. And who will push you towards achieving, not a bunch of people that are going to say, hey, um, do you think I could write a character like this? I don't care. Just go write it. If you think something is good, write it. Well, I want you to know that 
one, I do care about your feelings, but two, I better be on the top of the <laughs> list of the beta readers for that third book. Yes, yes, I, I, I can absolutely make that happen. I could absolutely make that happen. I, I have uh, I have to let you in on a little secret, man. Um, my my uh, my list of beta readers is incredibly small, <laughs> so so you can you can absolutely be added to that list. There's there's uh, four other people in there with you. So, <laughs> Derek, where can our listeners find you? Um, so that porterfield.com, t h a t porterfield.com. Um, that is kind of my Lincoln bio, if you will. Uh, it just has a bunch of links to all the different things. So if you want to listen to the music, you want to check out my uh, videography company, you want to check out all the books, uh, the audiobooks, all that kind of stuff. You can do all of that from there. And, uh, you know, you can see a, a video featuring my beautiful face as I, uh, you know, parade around doing stupid junk because I like doing that occasionally. I love all the videos that you've been creating lately with, with Hazel's help. Yes, she, she is the best storyboarder and, uh, easily the best hype man I think I've ever had. Um, it, it's just fun. It's fun to be able to be creative with my daughter. I love that. You're, you're raising an incredible, uh, future director of photography. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. She's that. going to graduate <laughs> high school with, with, with a trade and a skill that she can go to Hollywood with. Man, I, I hope so. I also hope she gets a real job and unlike her dad, you know, like there's, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I want her to suffer through the, the toils of, of being uh, self-employed. I think you can recognize the, the struggle there. There's just, uh, um, it, it's, it's a joy that is unique to pain <laughs> and I don't want her to have to experience all that. <laughs> Very well put. Derek, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. No, hey, like thank I said, you for having me on, man. I just, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I knew that this is the way this conversation would go. It'd be just another coffee shop conversation between you and me. Yes. Yes. And I love it. And, uh, we, we are going to have another one when I try to interview you for that poem. So what should I wear? Uh, something slinky, something, something silky, something sexy. I like it. <laughs> Again, thank you so much. That's Derek Porterfield, uh, lead singer, singer songwriter of Derek Porterfield and all his friends, author of the Mute Cat Chronicles and his next poetry book, I Am Not in a Good Place, comes out later this year. Uh, Derek, again, thank you so much. Thank you for the time. Listeners, give us five-star reviews. Let us know what you think of the uh, of the interviews we have on here. Please, you know, subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. And let me know a couple of things. One, who you want to see on this podcast, who you want to hear from, what you want to hear about. And if you are an author, if you're an independent author and you've got stories to share, if you've got tips and tricks that you want to share with an, with an aspiring author out there, please hit me up. You can reach me directly at andrew at writerbrandt.com. Thank you to our advertisers for this episode, The Subtle Nerd at thesubtlenerd.com and Expand Shoelaces. Again, I'm Andrew J. Brandt signing off.